1: Hi, this is Hold Your Fire, a podcast by the International Crisis Group. I'm Richard Atwood. Today we're covering Libya. Can the UN's new envoy help chart a way out of the country's political crisis? Chaos continues on the streets of Tripoli after deadly clashes broke out on Saturday between militia backed by Libya's rivaling administrations. So far, 32 people have been killed and 159 injured. Last August, rival factions clashed in the streets of Libyan capital Tripoli. The fighting followed months of tension after the collapse of a roadmap Libyan factions had agreed to as part of a peace deal in February last year. That deal envisaged Libyan politician Abdul Hamid Dbeibah holding power as caretaker until elections that were supposed to take place in December. That vote was cancelled at the last minute. Parties couldn't agree on voting procedures, and shortly afterwards, Libya's parliament, based in the east of the country, voted to replace Dubayba with Fatih Bashaga. Bashaga, like Dubayba, is from Libya's west, but he'd built ties with Khalifa Haftar, a powerful commander from the east. Foreign capitals mostly seemed to hope that the Bashaga Haftar alliance could mend divisions that have long gridlocked Libya's politics. But factions in Tripoli rejected the eastern parliament's vote, the UN expressed its reservations and, as a result, no foreign government except Russia formally recognised Bashaga as Libya's leader. For his part, De Beber refused to stand down. Then, in August, forces loyal to Bashaga and Haftar tried to seize power by force. The attempt failed after De Beber mustered the support of armed factions in Tripoli. Fighting's now subsided, but the political split remains. Bashaga holds out in the east of the country, still nominally supported by the parliament and by Haftar. De Beba, who's still formerly Libya's prime minister, sits in the capital Tripoli, supported by the State Council, a Tripoli-based assembly that's rival to the eastern-based parliament. The hydrocarbon agreement aims to reach a win-win situation for both sides, on land and at sea, for research, drilling for both Turkish and Libyan companies. Libya's international politics are also getting thornier. The peace deal two years ago was enabled by a moment of reconciliation among the Middle Eastern powers that had backed rival Libyan factions. Today though, Turkey and Egypt are again starting to see Libya's crisis as zero sum. Just this week, Debaba De signed a maritime deal with Turkey as a follow-up to an agreement from two years ago. We just heard Turkish Foreign Minister Mevlut Cavusoglu talking about it. Egypt's furious at the deal, which demarcates for Turkey areas of the East Mediterranean Egypt itself claims. This is Egypt's Foreign Minister Sami Shukri, condemning the agreement.
0: We stress that the outgoing unity government in Tripoli does not have the authority to conclude any international agreement or memoranda of understanding, and we agreed on the importance of the international community and the United Nations taking a clear and strong position.
1: A new UN envoy, former Senegalese minister and UN diplomat Abdullahi Batili starts his work this week. His tenure follows a long absence for the UN as the Security Council for months couldn't agree on a new envoy. Partly thanks to splits over the Ukraine war. So can Libyan factions and their foreign backers agree on a new roadmap and find a way out of the political crisis? Or should we expect more violence? And what should Batili's priorities be? So to talk about all this, I am very happy to welcome back on Claudia Gazini. Claudia, as people who listened to previous seasons of the podcast will know, is Crisis Group's Libya expert. Claudia, welcome back on.
0: Thank you for having me back, Richard.
1: So, Claudia there was the violence, as we heard up top last August. What's the situation now? I mean, have things have sort of calmed down, but there's still a sort of political deadlock?
0: The country is once again divided. There's no doubt about that. We have two governments. And unfortunately, we don't have really a political process on how to come out of this crisis. So what you say, a deadlock, yes, is an apt description of the political reality on the ground. Militarily, the country is equally divided. Fortunately, not at war. I mean, these political rifts have not translated into an open conflict, in part because there's no international support for either side to wage a war. So the violence is localized so far in and around Tripoli occasionally. We see these bouts of fighting, but it hasn't, as I said, translated into an outright nationwide war. Tensions are also high because the country is fractured uh, financially. Libya was supposed to unite the two rival branches of the central bank. This was one of the post-war agreements in 2020 that was supposed to take place. And unfortunately, it hasn't. So we're looking at a country that is politically divided, militarily divided, financially divided, and all of this surrounded by foreign stakeholders involved in one way or another in the Libyan conflict that are once again taking polarized positions on the Libya file. So it's on all four levels a divided country.
1: So lots to unpack there, but let's talk first about the different Libyan actors. So Abdul Hamid still Prime Minister in Tripoli. There was some talk of him reaching out to Khalifa Haftar, who, as we heard, is still formally backing Fatih Bashaga. I mean, what should we make of those
0: reports? Libyan political factions are divided on the way forward. As you mentioned, there is one idea, which is to try to forge an agreement between the Tripoli-based Prime Minister, Abdelhamid Hamid Dubeba, and General Haftar, who's based in eastern Libya, and peel away, let's say, Haftar's support to Bashaga and bring him back into the pro camp. That is one approach that some individuals close to Haftar, close to Dbeba, have been working on. Some foreign countries are supportive of this idea that a way forward to end this state of two governments is to have a new power-sharing deal between these two major factions. But it, so far it hasn't materialized. Uh, there's mistrust on Haftar's side and his backers about Beba. The deal was supposed to materialize in the form of a new government or so a cabinet reshuffle. We haven't seen that. But a first step had been taken, and this was two months ago now, with Dbeba conceding to appoint a person close to Haftar uh, by the name of Farhat Ben Gadara as the new head of Libya's uh, national oil corporation. But beyond that, there was no progress in in turning this initial conversation in an actual deal.
1: And, uh, I mean, is it a bit of a surprise that Debeba himself is still in power? I mean, obviously, that wasn't the plan. He came in as a caretaker should have been elections. And then there was this attempt to oust him in parliament, then the attempt to oust him by force, but he's still there. Is that starting to change people's calculations at all?
0: Yeah, when Beba was brought to power, and that happened in UN-mediated talks in 2020, he was supposed to stay in power only for one year. That was the agreement. His mandate was supposed to end by December 2021. So... What the Parliament did, which was to appoint a new Prime Minister in a vote that was controversial and not recognized by most foreign capitals, so that was their first attempt to remove Beba. The second attempt that sort of followed up were these attempts to enter Tripoli by Beba's uh, rival Fatiba Shaga, which failed. And so you're right to say that Beba's hold on power and the fact that he remains in Tripoli is creating some unease in certain parts of society. But I wouldn't say it is uh, widespread. He does have a support base in and around Tripoli, both some military factions and people who in one way or another are seeing the benefits of Beba in the form of subsidies and, you know, family uh, payments and so on. So there is still some support for him in the country and support from those factions that are inherently anti-Haftar that, you know, do not want to see a Fatih allied to Haftar come to power. And the unease, I would say, about Beba staying in power is most felt by some foreign countries. I'm referring to Egypt uh, in this particular case, because Egypt seems to have moved away from being a supporter of the Beba government back in 2020, initially signing agreements with, uh, with him to their position now, which is vocally against him and vocally stating in even public forum that Baba's government is illegal and, and he has to go.
1: Yeah, and we'll come on to the international politics in a moment. How would you explain De Beba's ability to fend off this attack on Tripoli? From what I understand, there was this convoy coming up from Misrata that turned back. Di was able to muster more support than people expected in the capital. How did that uh, sort of attempt fail?
0: So the 27th of August, March on Tripoli, as I like to call it, it was the third attempt by forces loyal to Fatima Shaga to take over the capital. We had other episodes, but it was the most violent episode. What happened, in my view, is a typical case of miscalculation. Fatih Bashaga thought that he would have the support of some Misrathan forces allied to him who were on their way to Tripoli. He equally thought that he would have the support of forces from nearby Zawiya, a city about 50 kilometres west of Tripoli.
1: Fatih Bashaga is himself from Misrata, right?
0: He is a Misratan himself with very good and strong ties to armed factions there. You know, at some point he was heading some armed groups uh, from Misrata. And he is a former military commander himself. I think he was uh, in aviation. So he has this sort of military credential. But support for him in Misrata over time has eroded after this deal with Haftar, after this vote in parliament, uh, including from his family members who had sort of rejected idea of going forward at all costs with this parallel government
1: partly because of their resistance to Haftar
0: partly for their resistance to half-turn, partly simply because they rejected the idea of him leading a parallel government. There was support for him to be the prime minister if he would become the prime minister, the one and only prime minister. But in the moment in which the vote became controversial, that there was no international recognition, people just wanted him to stop and not divide the country. Uh, But he went forward. So I think this is why political support for him within his own community eroded. And I think Bashaga and his team miscalculated the level of military support. And mind you, they could have been even wrongly informed by foreign intelligence services if if they were in communication with them. Because I remember at the time in August, many... Foreign Intelligence Services were saying, oh, it's a done deal, Fatih's going to march into Tripoli. So this is what what foreign capitals also thought. But essentially, the Misratan forces that were supposed to help him U-turned back. Uh, Zawiya forces did not come to his aid. And Baba aligned armed groups from Tripoli had the better over Bashaga's allies inside Tripoli.
1: So what's going to happen to him now? I mean, that that attempt has failed. His attempt to oust Debeba with the vote has failed. What does the future hold for Fatih Bashaga?
0: See, it's hard to tell because some people are advising him to take a step back and to recognize that he has failed. So maybe to concede that this is an opportunity to rethink the future and possibly open up a new vote for a a new government, a new prime minister. And from what I'm told, he has in private sort of signaled that he would be willing to cooperate towards a, a, a new settlement. But on the other hand, people allied to him apparently have also told him don't you dare take such a soft stance you are the prime minister you continue to be our prime minister so it's a, it's he's in a difficult position whether to maintain this stance of you know being the parliament backed uh, but not internationally recognized prime minister or to step aside and open the door for negotiations personally I think uh, Bashaga has extinguished his possibilities of becoming the prime minister of a united Libya. Uh, Certainly factions in Tripoli will not support him after everything that has happened.
1: But he still enjoys, despite being from the West, despite being Misratan, he still enjoys the support of the Eastern Parliament, right? I mean, he still enjoys the support of parliamentary speaker Aguila Saleh and still seems to enjoy the support of Khalifa Haftar?
0: See, it's hard to tell. And Libya, you know, is a complicated country also because its factions are numerous and there's no... It's hard to say that, you know, the East supports, uh, still supports uh, Bashaga. I would say that the uh, parliament and Aguila Saleh is still holding on uh, to Bashaga um, because it's convenient politically for them to maintain this fiction of a, uh, of a prime minister that is legally recognized by them. But if you ask me, do they really support him? Do they think that he is the man, the right man for the job? I would say that across the board, most, fa- most groups in Eastern Libya have lost faith in him, including Aguila Saleh, including Haftar. Tellingly, there was a military parade that Haftar attended just a few days ago, and Fatih Bashaga was not there. We heard Haftar speak, but we didn't hear him mention Bashaga. We just heard him mention that the politicians have ruined the country, that it is up for the people to have their voice heard and so on. So there was no applause for Bashaga in a very symbolic context, and that's very telling, I would say.
1: And what are Hafta's options now?
0: Hafta is in a difficult position because society in the areas under his control are lamenting uh, you know, the deterioration of, you know, living conditions, which is the case across the country uh, in private. They're also lamenting this consolidation of authority of the military and more specifically Haftar's son, which is something few people in the East are comfortable with. Haftar has several sons who are his spokes persons and businessmen at the same time. And so there's a feeling that Haftar's sons have um, overstepped their authority and in some circles are not so welcome, but they're very powerful and they do call the shots uh, in eastern Libya. I mean, I think there are three trends within the pro-Haftar camp uh, and this also attests to why it's difficult to to move forward with the political process in Libya. There are some advisors of Haftar that are saying, telling him to make a deal with Beba, that is his best option. So form a unity government. There is another faction around him that is saying, refuse any deal with Beba because you cannot trust him. Uh, so uh support the formation of a new government in whatever way and, and shape that can be. And there's a, a third faction, I would say a more militaristic faction that says the way to go is to try to storm Tripoli again. So a, a, mil, a sort of military offensive. I think that last option is off the cards because they don't have the logistics and the international support or the finances to carry out that. But uh, I don't think Haftar himself really, I think they're a bit of at, at, a, at a loss on, 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 on where to go.
1: The other thing that's interesting, Claudia, I mean, if you go back a couple of years, maybe even a bit longer now, three years, you could sort of make sense of the fault lines. I mean, it was East versus West, and it was sort of, and I realise it's more complicated in Libya, but it was sort of Muslim brotherhood Islamism versus factions backed by governments in the region that didn't like the Muslim brotherhood. Those were sort of the fault lines, but it seems now that the last year has just scrambled those up. You've got Fatih Bashaga, who's from Misrata, you know, aligned with Haftar. We'll talk about the regional alliances separately in a moment, but it just seems that the fault lines are much less clear now, much harder to make sense of. Is is that fair?
0: To a certain extent, yes, the fault lines have changed, but I wonder to what extent. Uh, let me explain. Um when elections were supposed to take place and then they didn't last December and this idea of a new government came up, it was surprising to see Haftar ally himself with uh, uh, the political face of the Muslim Brotherhood because um, there is is a political party called the Justice and Construction Party that sort of embodies the Muslim Brotherhood and his uh, leader at the time, Sawan, uh, formally embraced this alliance with Haftar. Bashaga, uh, who was the former military commander that led the forces against Haftar in the 2019 war, 2020 war, also joined this alliance. So it was really incredible. I mean, you could say that this alliance sort of uh, showed that uh, these Libyans had uh, had turned the page. But The fact that this alliance failed to concretely materialize into into political power, according to me, means that we'll see the fault lines change change again. We might see a a hardening of the Haftar camp, uh, a breaking up of this alliance with the Muslim Brotherhood in the near future. So... What all of this sort of shows is that these alliances are very fluid as long as it, as they, as long as there's an immediate political objective, meaning bringing somebody to power, meaning salaries, meaning money, they can be, they can be formed, but equally quickly they can be disassembled if these alliances do not deliver on the objective.
1: Let's move to the international politics of the crisis itself. So maybe a good point to start, because it just happened recently, we heard about it up top, is this deal that Debeba has signed with Turkey about the East Mediterranean. Um, I mean, maybe just some sort of quick background. So what it was 2020 that the government in Tripoli signed an agreement with Ankara, just before Turkey got more heavily involved to defend Tripoli against haftar when he was marching on the capital the last time in 2019, So that agreement basically drew a border in the Mediterranean, in the East Mediterranean, that established Libya's and Turkey's respective rights to explore for oil and gas on either side of that line. But it was an agreement that cut across other maritime claims, especially those of Greece and Egypt. So at the time it was very controversial, obviously angered those other countries. And that was what a couple of years ago. And now De Beba has signed another deal with Turkey.
0: So based on this 2019 agreement uh, ratified by the Turkish parliament in early 2020, just last week, Turkey and Libya signed a follow-up agreement. And it essentially says that based on that agreement made two years ago, uh, demarcating the uh, economic exclusive zones of the two countries, Turkey and Libya will cooperate in exploring and drilling um, oil and gas in this economic exclusive zone. This, again, is controversial because these uh, demarcation zones were not recognized by other member states. It's, according to the EU and EU member states, it's an infringement of Greece, for example this agreement has infuriated the egyptians um who also are very wary of seeing turkey cement its influence in libya and is considered more broadly i think politically inside libya is considered a violation of what were supposed to be these interim arrangements after the end of the war because there was a tacit uh, agreement that uh parties in libya would not uh, sign up to international agreements uh, until the country is unified and until the the peace process is completed, so any binding international agreement that would harm the interests of the rival factions should be avoided and well debaba. De didn't do that. And by signing this agreement with the Turks, he once again sort of uh, provoked the anger of, of those in eastern Libya who, who oppose growing Turkish influence uh, in the country. And so,
1: I mean, Turkey now used to be close to Bashaga as well. I mean, Bashaga paved the way for the, in some ways, for the Turkish intervention in 2020. But now that's completely off because of Bashaga's alliance with Haftar.
0: Yes, I would say that Turkey did consider Bashaga an ally two years ago. He was key <laughs> to bringing Turkish forces to Tripoli. But I think the Turkish officials now view Bashaga as somebody who has conceded too much to Haftar, given him everything that he has wanted, and uh, somebody who cannot reign in Haftar and his interests and the interests of uh, the countries that are backing um, Haftar. And with Dbeba delivering so easily on on this gas deal, oil and gas deal, um, I think they are more keen to see Dbeba stay in power longer.
1: So, Claudia, I mean, things over the past few years have been changing in Middle Eastern politics. right? I mean, the the Gulf Corporation Council spat, that's formally over. I mean, there's maybe still some bad blood between the Emirates and Qatar, but the GCC crisis is over. Relations between Turkey and Saudi Arabia have uh, improved and things seem to be calming down, even between Ankara and Cairo, between Turkish President Erdogan, and President Sisi in Egypt. But now these tensions, you know, especially those between Egypt and Turkey, they're now back in Libya, all the more so because of this maritime deal.
0: Yeah, there was a time towards the end of uh, 2020, beginning of 2021, when we really saw... The positive effect of the de-escalation of those regional rifts on Libya, so the fact that the Emirates and Qatar were uh, opening up to one another and ending their rifts, had a positive effect on the peace talks in Libya, Uh, the same thing about Turkey and Egypt. We certainly wouldn't have had this uh, formation of a government of national unity, a ceasefire in 2020, had the regional politics not um, improved. But what we're seeing now is very worrisome because we're seeing Egypt. Turkey almost back at each other's throats. And this is really hindering the peace process in Libya, because then we're, we're seeing these two key countries, one extremely influential in the east of Libya, extremely influential on General uh, Haftar and the LNA, I'm talking about Egypt, and Turkey, extremely influential in Tripoli. It has men on the ground, it has control of military bases. These two countries extremely polarize on their positions about the political future. So it's very difficult to see how the political process can move forward unless these two countries go back to opening up conversations. And it won't be easy because their rifts obviously are not just about Libya. There's a whole dispute over the East Med gas. That is one of the burning points of, of the relations between these two countries. And that also needs to be uh, addressed if, if we want an improvement in the bilateral ties.
1: So that's Turkey and Egypt. But what about the Europeans? I mean, there seems to be a reasonable degree of consensus, at least among the UK, Germany and Italy, on how they see potential ways forward.
0: I would say Germany, UK and, um, and Italy, which are you know the three countries most directly involved would like Libya to have elections but you know uh, <laughs> I rightfully see this as as a complicated outcome at least in the near future. They want the country to be united so they think that there is probably one of two options one is in an enlarged Baba government um, as as we mentioned where Haftar comes into the picture and there's a new big grand bargain of sorts Most of them think this is the most realistic option, but they're also eyeing a second, which is, you know, a new government uh, entirely. But they know that this is difficult. But I would say what distinguishes the position of these countries to Egypt, for example, is that these European countries are much more amenable and realistic in their ambition to see a, a sort of an enlarged Beba government new power sharing deal than than Egypt, which adamantly uh, wants to see Beba out.
1: And France, in some ways, is maybe a bit of an outlier in Europe in that even if formally supporting the Baba government, traditionally being closer to Haftad, I mean, is that is that also fair?
0: France has maintained close ties to to Haftar all these years, and I would say that France's position swings between the Italy-German UK camp and the Egyptian camp because France also has very close security cooperation ties with uh, with Egypt. So it's very influenced by the Egyptian position. So in this sense. Whereas the other European countries were happy for Debeba to stay on, France was the country in Europe that most wanted Fatih Bashaga to take power. And then it did. It stopped supporting Bashaga when they saw that uh, he couldn't make it, when there was a row over the legality of the vote. And I would say up until a month ago, France had sort of softened at the idea that was prevailing amongst European uh, countries that, you know, they should help support a new grand bargain, a Debeba-Haftar deal. I think that changed recently with the Turkey-Libya deal. Somehow, my impression is that France has um, moved away from that position and gone back to the Egypt's, <laughs> Egyptian position of at all costs wanting to think of options on how to remove Beba from power.
1: I mean, the interesting thing about France's ties to Haftar is that it has ties, quite close ties to Haftar, is uh, Russia, even if informally through the Wagner Group. I mean, Obviously, the Wagner Group, this Russian security company, as we've heard about, Several times recently on the podcast owned by Yevgeny Prigozhin, it's close to the to the to the Kremlin, and people estimate uh, some thousands of Wagner fighters uh, alongside Haftar. And, and yet France also supports Haftar. How do you see that? I mean, in other parts of the world where Wagner's come in. Uh, relations between the governments that wagner's helping in france have have deteriorated pretty quickly i mean i'm thinking of mali or the central african republic and yet in libya that doesn't seem to have happened
0: i think there's one main difference and that is egypt in the sense that, you know, France's position and France's support for Haftar is in part corollary of France's good ties with the Egyptian military establishment. Okay, there are commercial ties, military um, uh, contracts involved. And Egypt sees itself as extremely influential, helped uh, Haftar and his forces build themselves up in these past uh, eight years. And so, France's support towards Haftar is an extension, I would say, of France's military ties to Egypt.
1: And the US? So what, closer to the German-Italian-UK position?
0: Well, politically, the US is very much close to the Italian-German-UK position. They thought Bashaga would come to power, uh, last February. They were very supportive. I remember the special envoy Norland saying that uh, the vote in parliament was, you know, almost a done deal, that he expected Bashaga to come to power. And that didn't materialize. And for some time, I think they were still hoping that Bashaga would come to power. But the American position radically changed after the beginning of the war in Ukraine. So they were up until, you know, February, early March, they were supportive of Bashaga, start the war in Ukraine. They grew cold of Bashaga because they saw him as an ally to Haftar and hence as an extension, as an ally to Wagner. And that was a liability. So the Americans are now tacitly, uh, but clearly, see Dbeba staying in power until there isn't any other alternative option um, as. Uh, the best way forward, that said, in Washington, there's not much bandwidth on Libya. Yeah. <laughs> I think one of the big problems is that it's a very low priority file for them, um, which is a cause of frustration for many European diplomats who would like to see Washington much more uh, determined and clear uh, in its Libya policy, but uh, Washington hasn't really been clear on on what political uh, roadmap it supports. Waiting to see what the UN envoy uh, has to offer, and what is most remarkable is that the US really doesn't uh, doesn't appear to be um, uh, uh, fearful of uh, Russia's growing sort of influence on the ground in Libya. At least it hasn't it hasn't made that um, uh, uh, apparent.
1: And if the US has been sort of disengaged. The UN, too, has been disengaged. I mean, it's quite common for us to talk about now how some Security Council business has sort of kept going despite the crisis in in Ukraine. But one of the things that has suffered and really been uh, delayed is the appointment of a new envoy. Now, finally, there is a a new UN envoy. Abdullah uh, Batili is coming in to this quite complicated picture now, the deadlock that we talked about a more difficult international context in some ways. It's, in some ways, it's a reversion back to, to, to some years ago. In other ways, it's even worse because of the collapse in relations between Russia and Western governments. How do you think uh, Batili is going to navigate some of this? What are some of the sort of big questions that he faces?
0: Yes, well, the, the, there has been a vacuum in the UN leadership in Libya for, for months now. I mean, uh, it was a year ago that Stephanie Williams was brought in as... Just temporary replacement, and since July, we haven't seen anybody at the helm of the of the UN mission because Stephanie Williams even um, uh, left the mission in this acting capacity. So, um, so Batili finds himself having to first of all try to. Um, maintain the reins of a UN-led political process in Libya. And that's not for granted at all, because in these past 10 years, we have seen the UN lead the political process, lead the negotiations between Libyan actors, in a certain sense, call the shots. Um, But this past year, we've seen a growing assertiveness of the Libyan actors themselves, um uh, and the political process take uh, turns unexpected turns unexpected developments that were completely out of the hands of the united nations so the first is to reaffirm the un as And the lead political negotiator, because that's not a given at all. In this past year, we've seen various Libyan institutions take the lead. Uh, For example, the parliament put to a vote, the Fatih Bashaga government and what it wasn't part of the UN plan. Member states have been taking the lead uh, in trying to negotiate a deal. So Batili has to uh, fill the void, if he wants to, uh, left by the UN over these past uh, few months in leading political negotiations. The second question he will have to answer is, uh, what political process? Uh, uh, will he follow uh, where Stephanie Williams left off and lead primarily what is considered the constitution drafting process. This is a review of a draft constitution that was uh, written in 2017 and never put to a referendum, so it remained frozen. What Stephanie Williams did was to um, bring this draft back to the surface and um, have negotiators from the House of Representatives the east base, uh parliament, and the State Council, the Tripoli-based counterpart, renegotiate amendments of this draft constitution. Um, so will Batili follow that track, or will he heed to the requests of some foreign actors, which is to um, get involved and get his hands dirty in trying to renegotiate a, a deal on the executive? So the dilemma essentially boils down to constitution or executive. I, it, obviously, Richard, it doesn't have to be a dilemma framed in those, in those terms. He can be doing both. Uh, but this is a question that he will have to answer. And I think the third, the third issue that he will have to deal with and, and answer is, will he continue to, uh, keep alive this multi-track, uh, UN, uh, process in Libya. We've had a political track, a financial track, a military track, and an international track. This was an innovation of the past four, uh, four years. And it was actually a very original thing of the Libya, um, UN-led uh, peace process to have these interlocking, uh, back-to-back, uh, tracks, um, that are self-sort of supporting each other. Uh, it's a it's a lot for one envoy to do. So so we'll have to see whether Batili will still reaffirm this idea of a, a multi-track uh, peace process for Libya. We hope so.
1: And I mean, just to, to look at this uh, this second one again, the sort of, as, as you say, the choice between trying to push forward with a new constitution with the existing government or trying to renegotiate a new government. I mean, the new constitution, it, it, it's hardly really been going anywhere though, right? I mean those talks have sort of petered out.
0: Yeah. I mean, our assessment at Crisis Group is that the meetings that were held uh, earlier this year and which culminated in the uh, in a meeting in Geneva last July um actually have not moved this constitution drafting process that much and and for many of the actors involved it was almost an, a, a way to waste time. So we were skeptic uh, about it uh, from the beginning. Uh, Another reason for our skepticism was that Actually, the, the review of the draft constitution that was carried out under UN aegis was never really disclosed to the broader public. So many people have heard of these negotiations happening, but nobody has a clear idea. Even important political stakeholders don't have a clear idea of what those amendments were to the draft constitution. So there was really no transparency in the process and in the result. Yet, if you ask UN officials, they'll probably tell you that that process was very close to clinching a result. Uh, if you hear some international stakeholders, they will also tell you that. So I think, you know, a challenge for Batili will, have, will be to give a correct assessment of where things stand in that constitution a drafting process. For us, I repeat, at Crisis Group, This is almost a defunct process, but not everybody shares our opinion.
1: So, Claudia, that's high expectations in some ways of Batili. I mean, what influence does a UN envoy really wield, especially when international politics is so divided? He doesn't have a unified security council behind him, that the region is increasingly viewing Libyan politics as zero-sum. What can we realistically expect of the UN and of Batili?
0: It's very difficult to, to say what influence does the UN have in, in, in Libya in the sense that by UN, we actually mean a man or a woman because these uh, envoys or SRSGs that uh, have come to Libya have uh, had very different approaches and relations with Libyan actors. So the influence that Batili will have uh, will really depend on his approach and the extent to which Libyan factions, various factions, support him, engage with him, like him, and likewise, the extent to which he is able to to bring on his side foreign powers. The good thing is that he comes with a mandate of the Security Council. He has the support of the African Union. This is the big sort of novelty of this appointment is, you know, the fact that for the first time the SRSG is um, African. So to answer your question, Richard, on what, how much influence can we expect from the UN, it really depends on how Batili plays his card. In the past, we've seen SRSGs that have, you know, completely burnt their relations with certain factions, and we've seen other SRSGs courted by all factions. That said, I think there's a very strong need for the UN, because at the end of the day, the UN is, you know, the one flag that uh, all member states can rally behind. I I think member states also recognize that any peace initiative that is promoted by them uh, individually, or one or two states, tends not to have enough traction to, to fly. So we hope that Batili will be able to exercise the greatest influence in, in keeping uh, foreign capitals uh, aligned rather than at odds with one another.
1: And Claudia, what international track does Batili have to work with? I mean, last time you were on, we talked about the Berlin track. Germany hosted international consultations on Libya involving all foreign powers involved, but those petered out. There's now, after the Ukraine war, a lot of resistance in Western capitals to having Russia directly involved in any new track What's the chance of Batili getting something similar going again?
0: The Berlin process, um, which is this sort of format that brought together the main international stakeholders at a very high level, that Berlin process is on, on hold. Uh, we haven't seen consultations taking place, in part because of Russia's war in Ukraine. It is impossible to invite um, uh, Russian envoys to the table to discuss a country like Libya, that might be changing. There is some understanding that if there is a UN event, a UN invitation for consultations, a bit like what takes place uh, in New York, then Russia can be at the table. So there is increasingly now a talk of a possible new Berlin conference. But the fact that there hasn't been any major consultation process has meant that we're back to the smaller groupings of countries consulting one another. And this has meant that we're back to Western countries. So the, you know, the P3 plus two format, and that means France, uh, US and UK, P3 plus Germany and Italy consulting each other rather regularly on their common uh, points of interest. To this P3 plus two, some of these meetings uh, also had an extra plus two. Uh, So there was uh, Turkey and Egypt representatives also invited. But what we're seeing, we've seen in recent weeks or heard of in recent weeks is the emergence of another parallel uh, consultation format spearheaded by Russia, actually. So apparently uh, Moscow and China have been Leading their consultation processes on Libya, with Moscow allegedly uh, hosting a meeting in the past few weeks, where Egypt and the UAE, I am told, also sent envoys to. So it's it has never happened before in uh, in these past ten years, uh, at least as far as we are aware. It would be an indication, if true, that indeed the international scene is uh, once again very polarized
1: so the new special representative i mean he'll be coming in and he'll be trying to forge in essence uh, uh, or contribute towards a political settlement but the last time there was any sort of progress in libya it was after the turkish intervention in 2020 that then sort of beat back haftar's forces stopped them taking tripoli uh, and then you know advanced pushed forces from the East back to the East, but then importantly didn't go any further. There was this sort of stalemate and new power sharing arrangement and a new roadmap in essence came out of that. Now that roadmap's fallen apart, elections were cancelled, there's been again to reverted back to the political deadlock. Do you see that there is a way for politics alone to you know, to get the sort of parties that we've talked about to agree on a new political roadmap? Or are we just really waiting for another bout of violence to sort of shuffle the cards and, and do that?
0: See, the situation today is very different than where it was in 2020. We had a prime minister based in Tripoli who wanted to leave uh, power. He, he was dying to go uh, and, and retire into a private life. We had an eastern government that uh, couldn't sustain itself financially and wanted out uh, as well. We had a better sort of geopolitical alignment uh, where um, countries that had been at feud with one another were starting to talk to each other and we had a military defeat on the ground in Libya. So all these factors contributed to a positive political outcome and a positive political negotiation back then. We don't have the same situation now at all. We have a triple based government and leader that um, doesn't want to relinquish power Um, we have uh, an eastern based government uh, that is uh, also feeling very legitimized uh, in claiming their rights to come to power Um, so it would seem that politically um, there's little hope for a compromise Uh, but but despite me saying that, I don't think we are uh, witnessing a natural drift into a conflict in the sense that conflicts uh, in Libya need a certain degree of foreign support, which we're not seeing. I mean, we're not seeing Turkey ready to throw in equipment to support a Tripoli-led offensive in the east. Nor Egypt or other Haftar allies are ready uh, to back Haftar in a new Tripoli offensive, as far as we know. And a war needs money. And at the moment, East Base authorities. Uh, do not have enough uh, to bankroll an offensive, and the Tripoli-based authorities are also gradually coming out of a long, drawn-out economic crisis. So the international scene and the financial scene is not, wouldn't seem to indicate that Libya is uh, is drifting towards a new war. But it's a very fragile peace uh, for now, and and I think if the geopolitical scene deteriorates then uh, we could see a deterioration of the of the reality on the ground in Libya as well because you know let's remember we are in a very volatile uh, international environment with russia and the west uh, at odds with turkey and egypt at odds and this could have potentially a ripple effect on libya too
1: claudia thanks so much for coming on again
0: you're welcome richard it's always great
1: Hold your fire is a production of the International Crisis Group. I'm Richard Atwood. You can find all of our work on Libya, on everywhere else we cover, on our website crisisgroup.org. You can also follow us on Twitter at crisisgroup. Thanks to our producers, Kevin Murphy, Heiko Schaub. Thanks, of course, as usual, to all of you, our listeners. Please do get in touch. Podcast at crisisgroup.org, or write to me directly atward at crisisgroup.org. If you have any suggestions or concerns, if you like the show, please do leave us a positive rating or review. Next week, we're going to go back to Ethiopia to talk about the war in the northern Tigray region. Crescent Group put out a statement on Thursday this week, warning of how bad things were looking. And the week after that, we will probably look at some of the politics in the Gulf, particularly after the OPEC decision not to raise oil production, much to the frustration of Washington. So I very much hope that you'll join us again for that.